You see, what Paul is saying is that when he really began to understand the Tenth Commandment, he suddenly realized that God cared about what was going on in his heart. That all the commandments were not just about external actions, but the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Oh, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new six-part series in Romans chapter 7 titled Caught in the Act. Ask yourself this question, is it possible to take pleasure in evil solely because it's evil? In other words, can you enjoy stealing for the sake of stealing and not out of desperation or material need? According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, the answer is yes. In fact, it's the nature of human fallenness to enjoy sin, more than you may even realize. And throughout this series, we'll be looking at the relationship between the law of God and the sinfulness of humanity and the role that both play in the life of the unbeliever. But before we begin today, here is Tom with an opening thought about this new series. Tom? It's important to understand how chapters 6 and 7 fit into the flow of Paul's argument in Romans. At the end of chapter 5, he raises two issues. One is, what is the believer's relationship to sin? And he explains that in chapter 6. The second is, what is the believer's new relationship to the law? And he answers and explains that in chapter 7. And he begins chapter 7 by saying, we have as believers died to the law. In what sense? Well, we've died to the law as, as a way to earn our way into God's favor, to be reconciled to God. And therefore, we've died to the penalty of the law. But that doesn't mean the law doesn't have a purpose. And really, that's what Paul goes on to explain in the paragraph that we're going to study together. What purpose does the law serve? And his answers are so helpful and so insightful as we turn to, his, to the Lord's Word together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. Romans chapter 7. This week I read an excerpt again from a book that I read long ago, perhaps a book that you've read as well. It's by Augustine, the early church father, his most famous work, the classic called Confessions. Essentially, it was his personal testimony in a prayer form offered to God as he describes the work of God in his life and in his heart. In the book Confessions, Augustine recounts an episode from when he was 16 years of age. When he was 16, he and some friends decided one night to enter someone else's yard, someone else's field, and they stole some fruit from a pear tree. Now, that doesn't seem too bad on the, on the face of it. I mean, there, for all the trouble that kids roaming around at night could get into, that 16-year-old kids, that doesn't seem like it's that bad. But this really began to eat at the heart of Augustine. And here's why. The real bother for him with this act had to do with his motive. His motive. You see, he realized that he didn't steal the pears because he was hungry. In fact, they ended up actually throwing the pears to the pigs. And this made it even worse to him. 
This is what he writes. I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, in other words, not the pears, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. Have you ever been prompted to do something simply because of the thrill of doing what's forbidden, of doing what's wrong? That's what Augustine is dealing with here in his own heart. And so in light of that, he asked himself this question. Was it possible to take pleasure in what was illicit for no reason other than it was not allowed? Did I want to do that simply because it was forbidden? Is that possible? Paul's answer in Romans 7 is absolutely yes. In fact, he tells us here in Romans 7 that it is the nature of our fallenness to want to do what is forbidden. But the problem doesn't lie in the law that forbids it. The problem lies in our own hearts. Now last week we discovered an incredible remarkable assertion that Paul makes in verse 5. You remember it? There buried in the middle of verse 5, he says, for while we were in the flesh, while we were unbelievers, the sinful passions in us were aroused by the law. God's moral law, Paul says, arouses the unbeliever's sinful passions. Now that is a remarkable statement, a controversial statement. But in Romans 7, Paul goes on to use his own background as a law-loving, externally law-keeping Pharisee to illustrate this point. Not only can the law not produce obedience in us, it actually arouses, it stokes, it inflames our sinful passions. Now, having said that, in verse 5, that invites a question, a question that Paul feels he needs to answer. The question is this, so is there some inherent problem with God's law that arouses our sinful passions? In other words, is the problem really with God's law? Paul's opponents could easily conclude that what he was teaching was that the law itself was flawed in some way. In fact, maybe they would even conclude that he was teaching people against the law. That was the very accusation that the first century opponents of Christianity brought against the early believers. You remember what they said about Stephen in Acts 6, verse 13. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the law. In Acts 25, verse 8, Paul in answering the charges that, w- that have been brought against him, said in his own defense, I have committed no offense against the law of the Jews. So this was an accusation that was made, and you could perhaps arrive there just by reading what we saw in verse 5, that the law arouses our sinful passions. And so Paul wants to make it clear that the problem is not with God's law, it's with us. He shows us in these verses that the law is actually a good thing, that it serves a vital purpose in the lives of unbelievers. Now let's read it together. Romans chapter 7, 
beginning in verse 7 and down through verse 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, the structure of the paragraph I have just read for you is very clear, because just like in chapter 6, Paul frames it around two objections and his answers to those objections. You'll see objection number one in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. And then Paul's answer to that objection starts in the middle of verse 7 and runs down through verse 12. Objection number 2 comes at the beginning of verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good, that is the law, become a cause of death for me? Did the law cause my death? May it never be. Paul's answer then comes in the second half of verse 13 to that second objection. So let's look at what he teaches us here. Responding to the first objection, Paul makes this basic point. In verses 7 through 12, here's his point. God's moral law doesn't cause your sin. God's moral law doesn't cause your sin. He begins by stating the objection, and we could summarize the objection this way. Paul, your teaching about the law leads to the conclusion that God's law is evil and actually the cause of my sin. Notice what he says in verse 7. What shall we say then? What is the logical conclusion of what I've just taught? What has he just taught? Go back to verse 5. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Paul says, is it therefore legitimate to conclude that there is some inherent problem with God's law? Verse 7 says, is the law sin? Is God's moral law actually evil? Is it somehow responsible for creating or causing my sin? Paul says, may it never be. This is that familiar phrase that, that expresses moral outrage. He says that's a, that's a morally repulsive idea that God's law is somehow evil. It's never been true. It never will be. And then he moves on, having stated the objection, to provide an answer to that objection, beginning in the middle of verse 7 down through verse 12. And we could summarize his answer to this objection this way, 
Our inherent sinfulness causes our sin. Our inherent sinfulness causes our sin. Now, I want you to begin by noticing that Paul starts here with the pronoun I. Notice verse 7, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except for the law, for I would have not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. And then in verse 8, he talks about me. Verse 9, I, I. Understand then that this reference throughout here to I and me has been variously interpreted by commentators and interpreters. You look at it and you might say, well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, it's like Paul. Well, there are actually three views of what's going on here. One view says that Paul is really talking like Adam, that he's sort of personifying Adam, and that Adam is talking here about what happened in the fall in the garden. A second view is that this is not Adam, but Israel. Before Israel received the law of God at Mount Sinai, and when she did receive it, what happened? The third view is that this is Paul's own pre-conversion spiritual autobiography. And I think that's the one that makes the most sense here. That is the, that is the most natural way to read this paragraph. And it's the only one of the three views that keeps this paragraph from being something like an allegory. And there's no hint here in the context that this is an allegory. So Paul is pretty clearly, I think, describing his own spiritual experience. But he's not just describing his spiritual experience. This is what you need to understand. Paul is using himself as an example of what happens to him and to others. In fact, we could put it this way, Paul uses his own spiritual experience throughout the rest of this chapter as an example, first of all, of what is true of unbelievers, verses 7 through 13, and of what is true of all believers, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. So he's using his own experience, but as a teaching tool to show us what happens to us as well. So then, verses 7 through 13, and specifically, Verses 7 through 12, Paul is using his experience as a Pharisee before he came to Christ to identify, first of all, the real purpose of the law for unbelievers. The real purpose of the law for unbelievers. And there are two of them. First of all, to identify the thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions that God says are sin. In other words, the law shows us, it tells us what is sinful, what constitutes sin. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. On the contrary. In other words, not only is the law not the cause of sin, but exactly the opposite is true. God's law actually identifies sin. It tells me what is sin. It tells me the thoughts, the words, and the actions that are sinful. By the way, God's law does this for everyone. God's law does this for the pagan. By pagan, you remember back in Romans 1, we mean those who don't claim to worship the true God of the Bible. Everybody else, everyone on this planet who doesn't claim to worship the God of Scripture is a pagan by biblical terms. Go back and and look with me at the purpose the law serves for such people. Chapter 1 And look at verse 32. Now remember, we're talking about people who are idolaters, people who don't claim to worship the true God of the Bible. And 
They don't have the Bible. Verse 32, and yet they know the ordinance of God. They know the law of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, but they not only do them, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. How in the world does a pagan somewhere on this planet who doesn't have the Scripture, how does he know the law of God? How does he know what's sin? We'll go over to chapter 2. You remember, Paul makes this clear. Chapter 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles, the pagans, who do not have the written law, do instinctively the things that are written in the law, these not having the written law are a law to themselves. How did this happen? Verse 15. They show the work of the law, the substance of God's law, written in their hearts. In other words, not a single person has ever been born on this planet who doesn't have a basic understanding of what God requires and expects. It's written in the heart. That's why chapter 1, verse 32 can say they know, they know the ordinance of God. They know it's wrong. They know it's worthy of death. So the law of God, even written on the heart, shows man what is sinful. How much more so for the one who professes to know the true God of the Bible, who has the Scripture. Look at chapter 2. You remember chapter 2 is about the Jew, and not only the Jew, but all of those in the first century who claimed to worship the true God of the Bible. And notice what he says to them, verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, you know his will. How? From the law. You approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. And yet, verse 21, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? In other words, what he's saying is, listen, if you are a person who claims to be connected to the true God of the Bible, you have the written law, and it shows you what is sin and what isn't. So the pagan has it written on the heart, person connected to the true God has it written in the Scripture, what that means is everybody is shown by the law of God, either written on the heart or written in Scripture, what is sin. Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Here it is. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So here is the first purpose of God's moral law. It identifies what's sinful. Thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions that are sin. But Paul is talking about so much more than that. Go back to Romans chapter 7. He's talking about objectively knowing what is sin and what is not but he's talking about so much more. Here in Romans 7, Paul identifies a second purpose of the law, and he does so by showing exactly how it worked out in his own life, and the second purpose of God's law is this, to prove to me that I am a sinner. Now we move to another step. This isn't just about knowing what's right and wrong. This is about knowing that I am a sinner, that I have violated the law of God. You see, God intends his law 
not only to show us what is sin, but to awaken our own consciences and to bring us under the conviction of our sin. Notice verse 7. I would not have come to no sin except through the law, for, here's the, here's the connection, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul says, let me give you an example from my own life. Here's what the law did. Now, clearly, when you see in quotes there, you shall not covet, Paul is quoting from what? He's quoting the Tenth Commandment. The Greek word for covet is a familiar word to us. It's the word that's often translated lust. Epithumia, lust. But this commandment, the Tenth Commandment, isn't just about sexual lust. It's much broader than that. In fact, the word lust itself is actually in and of itself a neutral word. It refers to any strong desire or craving. In fact, the word is sometimes used positively in the New Testament. Not often, but occasionally. In, in Luke 22, verse 15, Jesus says, I, and he uses the verb form of epithumia, I crave, I earnestly desire to celebrate this Passover with you. Most of the time, however, when this word occurs, it's desiring or craving something that God has forbidden. It's evil. It's the craving of what we shouldn't have. Now, what is Paul talking about here when he brings this 10th commandment in? Next week, we'll see this very clearly as we get to verses 8 through 11. Paul is saying this. Let me just give you a preview. Paul is saying here, I would not have personally known by experience that I was guilty of coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's what he's saying. In other words, God used the Tenth Commandment to bring to the Apostle Paul before his conversion a sense of his own sinfulness, that he was a sinner. Now, how did that happen? How is it and why did God use the Tenth Commandment to bring this sense of His sinfulness to Him? Well, to really understand that, we have to go back. We have to go back to the giving of the law in Exodus 19 and 20. I invite you to turn back there with me. Exodus 19 and 20. We have to understand the Ten Commandments in context. Now, let me give you some historical context. After God freed his people from Egyptian bondage, they had a three-month trip from Egypt to Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. The first two days after they arrived at Sinai were days of physical and spiritual preparation. But on the third day, something amazing happened. There was an awe-inspiring event that happened, and it's recorded in chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. So it came about on the third day after they arrived there at Sinai, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Verse 18 goes on to say, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh had descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. Verse 19, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Moses 
ascends partway up the mountain, and God tells him, no, stop. I want you to go back down. I want you to warn the people again not to cross the boundary on the penalty of death. So all of this is happening, and and can you imagine being caught in the cacophony of sounds and sights and all that was happening? And that trumpet sound just keeps getting louder and louder, and then all of a sudden the trumpet stops. There's silence. And out of the silence, all the people of Israel heard a great voice. It was the voice of God Himself. And God then spoke each of the Ten Commandments. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Caught in the Act. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music